Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. If we don't have any claim to our resources, resources that are unearned are confiscatable. And there shouldn't be an issue of justice with confiscating resources that you don't really own because you just got them lucky. And I think a whole generation of kids have been raised with that as their ethos. Hello, welcome again. I'm Danielle Smith, president of Alberta Enterprise Group, and this is Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. Today we are speaking with Peter Betke. He is a professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason University, as well as a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute. Professor, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. We are going to talk about collectivism, socialism, communism. You're going to get make sure that I use the right terms by the end of all of this. <laughs> But you know what the thing that has struck me, and it's been a number of things, it's, it's when I look at young people, they, they seem to all graduate from whether it's high school or university with the idea that communism was just never implemented right, but it really is the right system. And I, I often wonder where that, where that comes from, why it is that it is so visceral that people believe it should work. They really, really want it to work. And yet right. when it's put into practice, it never does work. Let's yeah. talk first about the motivation. What is this collectivist motivation? Where does it come from? Yeah, so I, 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 there's, there's a conjecture um, that Hayek is most identified with, but several others in trying to figure out what the root cause of our desire to have collectivism comes from. And uh, the hypothesis is that that we evolved in small bands of, of groups. And in those small bands of groups, when confronted with nature that's red in tooth and claw, the way that we survived was through deep cooperation with one another in these small bands. And so as a result, we have a lot of reciprocal altruism is one of the main origins of our virtues within these small bands. And so our moral intuitions, what we're hardwired to think of as our moral intuitions is, you know, that we have to have a boss. That's one of them. You know, so there's there have to be a chief or a kingdom or something like that that, that is there. But also that we are this tightly knit community that is in our, our um, that is uh, has obligations to one another. And then, you know, in the great society that we live in. We live in a world of anonymous interactions, not face-to-face. -face. So these are the, these moral intuitions are based on face-to-face -face interactions. And one way to easily think about that is if you went down for breakfast in the morning and your mom said to you, okay, that was you know $3 for the cereal and $1 for the coffee, you would think that was really weird, right? So, you know, mom gives you the cereal and the coffee or you don't drink coffee when you're having the cereal when you're a kid, but a glass of orange juice or whatever. And then, you know, but if you went to the local deli and expected them to do it, it would be just as weird. And so what Hayek says is that the modern society forces us to live in two worlds at once. It's we a, have to live in this collectivist world, which is our family and our community at some level very tight. 
And then we also have to live in the great society of the market. And so our moral intuitions are often at odds with the moral demands. And it's that tension, I think, that creates part of this puzzlement that you're talking about. Well, let's talk about it on a couple of levels, because then you could imagine circumstances and society structure or even communal structures or cooperatives that that could work under a communistic system. You've already talked about the family unit. That makes yeah. perfect sense that even and in that type of environment, it's always very important for mom and dad, uh, for parents to treat their kids equally. Like I think yeah. there's the, the classic experiment where if you've got two kids wanting a piece of cake, one does the cutting and the other gets to choose. So right. You make sure it's even Steven. But right. we've got a number of different communal environments that also seem to work. I visit a kibbutz, for instance, in, in Israel. And so that's one kind of communal structure. In my home province of Alberta, we've got Hutterite communities. That's another communal structure. It's very, very successful because they're very entrepreneurial in the farming sector. And so you look at those and you think, well, if it can work in that environment, why can't it work more broadly? Can you, can you talk a little bit about those kind of communal or, yeah. or, or, or cooperative type of arrangements? So I think one of the, uh, again, this might be a, a little too egg-headish, uh, but, but I think one of the best frameworks of analyzing these things comes from the work of Eleanor Ostrom and, and her husband, Vincent Ostrom. They worked at University of Indiana for many years, and Eleanor was the first woman to ever win a Nobel Prize in economics. And um, her work studied how it is that small communities can solve uh, very severe environmental problems having to do with a common pool resource or other kinds of scarcity that confronts that community. She looked at not only fisheries, one of her studies is actually fisheries in Canada, um, but she also looked at, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, forestry in, in the western of the United States and western Canada. She looked at uh, lobster pots in Maine. She looked at water irrigation across the world, right? And so communities can solve these local problems um, by coming up with various different rules. And those rules don't have to be private property rights in form. But those rules, she has a list of rules and she studies successful communities, communities failing and communities transitioning. It's in her uh, most famous book called Governing the Commons. And, um, and so she has these different principles that she sees from these communities. And one of them is, is that they have to, despite having collective ownership, they have to limit access. They have to assign responsibility and they have to introduce graduated penalties. So in, in, in a very important sense, what she, you have to distinguish is the form of the property right from the function that it's serving. And so I imagine if you go and study the Hutterite community, that there's a difference between their form and their function. And you kind of, you know, hinted at it in the sense that they are a cooperative, but they are very entrepreneurial in the open market. Right. And so they're not they're a cooperative in the way that they interact with each other. And they organize their local community. But the scalability and the sustainability of their project is going to be tested against the market economy in that case. And so, you know, you, can you can't necessarily grow from a small like cooperative into a giant cooperative 
without having to then address issues of when you suppress the market signals, how do you engage in metering and monitoring of your activity? How do you limit access, assign accountability, and introduce graduated penalties? Um, you know, and, and we can look at these in all these different areas. And so one of the things about Eleanor's research program, which was so valuable, was that she gave you these tools to study this tremendous diversity of institutions that human societies uh, come up with to try to deal with the basic problem of scarcity and the difficulties of coping with uncertainty and, and whatnot. I mean, imagine yourself in agriculture, right? And think about all the random events that you have to guard against just to be able to have your enterprise work. One of them is, some of them are completely out of your control, right? Weather, things like that. How do they build in risk analysis in the community to be able to protect themselves against the downside? She examines that. That takes the form of a variety of different ways people do that. It's tremendous creativity and cleverness of the actors in the economy themselves. But the scalability and sustainability of that relies on, you know, what goes on with the division of labor, the extensive form of division of labor and how you coordinate and cooperate in that world. I love what you're saying about the scalability, because I think that's really key. I think it was Jim Collins who wrote in his book, From Good to Great, looking at these communities, that there's kind of an optimal size of sure. about 120 people that you can have meaningful, call it tribal relationships with a maximum number of people. And that seems to be about the maximum number of relationships that we can have. So you, you're almost at a, a, a point where, uh, and I'm not sure why that is. I don't know, maybe I need to talk to a psychologist or an evolutionary biologist on this, but does that have the sort of the ring of truth to, to it sure. about you? There, there's a, I mean, I, I, I don't want to overstate that because it will, it will, it, it sometimes leads to a, a misunderstanding of what the real problem that socialism has, which is that it's not a computational problem. Mm -hmm. You know, that and people think, oh, it's just a computational problem and therefore modern computers could maybe, you know, fix it or whatever. But, it, you know, the knowledge problem that socialist enterprises face is not computation, but the fact that the context within which the economic knowledge is produced is only available within exchange processes. And those exchange processes are grounded in private property rights and the security of contracts. And so unless you have that, you can't get real prices. Those real prices then don't reflect the trade-offs that individuals are facing in their decision. They face, they administered prices give us something else. They tell us, let's say, you know, bureaucratic preferences, right? Which is I'm going to favor my friends and punish my enemies, or I'm going to maximize my budget or, you know, these kind of things. And so when, when it's very important to understand when economists talk about the problems of socialism, they're not saying that when they say you can't engage in rational economic calculation, you really have to underlie the word economic um, because people do still engage in rational calculations. It's just that they can't do the economic part of it. And what that means, I'm sorry for going on, but what that means is the following, which is that um, and this is the simplest way to think about it. We have an a amazing amount of ways to solve a technological problem. What we have to figure out in solving a technological problem is which is the most economically viable of the array of technologically possible ways. 
And I'll give you an extreme example of this from my very first teaching going back 30 years now. Okay. So I teach at George Mason University now. Um, I actually went to graduate school at George Mason University. And then I, after I graduated, I was gone for 10 years. And then I came back to join the faculty. But when I first was a graduate student, George Mason was growing. It went from 9,000 students to 15,000 students and 15,000 students to over 20,000 students during the four years that I was in graduate school. So as you might imagine, this led to this huge congestion problem. Uh, it was mainly a commuter school at the time. Um, and so the students would circle in giant things to try to find a, a, a spot to rush the class. So I'm teaching this giant principles class and I give them an assignment. And, and I said, uh, using the price system and only the price system, how would you fix the parking problem at GMU? And what I, what I was hoping that they would do is that they would price a really high price for parking spots close to the classrooms. And then, you know, far away, they would have a lower price. And then my idea was, is that you would be able to like sort out the spots rather than, than queuing up. Okay. So my students, they were, this is, they're early on in their economic education. So they didn't have that understanding yet. I thought I had taught them that, but you know, I hadn't yet. And so, but I got the most ingenious answers. Um, so one answer, uh, the government should mandate that all cars only have two wheels. That way everything is a motorcycle and then you could double the spots. Okay. Another one, and this is the most ingenious was uh, the where where George Mason is it's it's up a road called Braddock Road and the main you know road around Washington DC what's called the Beltway is called 495 so Braddock Road intersects at the Beltway and so they said we should build a helicopter pad at 495 and Braddock Road and students could park in a giant parking facility there and then take a helicopter to the campus now, what was interesting is that none of the students picked a technologically unfeasible thing. They didn't give me Star Trek. They didn't say we should all be able to beam up to go to our classes, you know, from our classroom or whatever. They picked technologically feasible ones. It's feasible that you could have a helicopter. It's, <coughs> it's feasible you could have only motorcycles. But the cost of that would be astronomical. So it's not economically viable. What the price system does, what economic competition does, is it sorts from the array of technologically feasible those which are economically viable. And that, that's why economics rains on people's parades. <laughs> they don't want to hear that because they no, want to No, completely, hear, oh, because I, I know exactly. Yeah, I can go from the helicopter, you know, to here. And I know exactly what those kids are thinking is that everybody should have an equally fair option. And when you put a pricing model in place, it means that the kids who have more money are going to get the premium parking spots right. and the kids with less money are going to get the bad ones and some might not get it at all. And that I think offends that sense of collectivism, yeah. that that's just not right, that somebody shouldn't also be able to have access to it. So that's I, a I wrote a paper, I wrote a paper not that long ago. It's reprinted in my most recent book. Um, talking about the reception of when of free to choose when I was a college student, which is when it came out, versus the attitude that kids have today when they're freshmen in college. And so let me just sort of lay out the argument there because I think it's relevant. It's what I call the tacit presuppositions. 
tacit presuppositions are the things that are unquestioned, right? And they come from our experience, not necessarily from reading books. Uh, what we think about the world when we look out the window is, is the world a positive sum game or is it a negative sum game or things like that. So, you know, when I was a kid, so I, grew, I was born in 1960. So I was graduating high school in 1978, um, entering college, uh, you know, in the late 70s, graduating in the early 80s. So let's put things in context here. As a 14-year-old or starting even younger, the Vietnam War and the failure of the Vietnam War was something I knew was going on behind the scenes in the world that I was growing up in. Then you have Nixon and, you know, he has to resign due to, you know, due to Watergate. Then you have Ford, who, by the way, was actually an actual fact, um, an all-American athlete, but he stumbled on Air Force One. And so as a result, all the comedians and everyone else tried to make him out to be a klutz. And so, you know, Chevy Chase would come on, he would be Jerry Ford, and then he'd fall all over the place and do all this physical comedy. Um, then you get Jimmy Carter, again, a nuclear engineer, but he's he's Jimmy Carter. And, you know, he, he does interviews where he says things which seem silly. And, you know, he jumped out of a canoe because a bunny jumped at him and he said it was like a killer rabbit. And then, you know, he appeared on TV with his cardigan and told the Boy Scouts we're going to check your thermostat because of the natural gas crisis. And then, of course, we had the gas lines and the stagflation and all these things like that. So no one of my generation would cry when a politician spoke. Right. A politician would speak. You'd be like, OK, so, you know, another, you know clown is up there doing things. We would much rather watch Saturday Night Live and laugh at the buffoonery of politics, okay? And the economy was, was, was in such dire straits, and it was because of the buffoonery of the state. So we wanted to free up the economy and things. So when Milton Friedman publishes Free to Choose, my generation is like eager to learn to that lesson. Whereas when he published Capitalism and Freedom, no one paid attention to it except for, you know, nerdy economists. But, you know, he became a phenom, you know, on the on the Phil Donahue show, you know, everyone listening to Milton Friedman in the late 1970s, early 80s. Now, go to the kid today. So right now, if a, if a, if a, a kid is a freshman in college, he's 17, 18, 19 years old, you know, one, they never experienced communism in, at all, ever. They don't know what it is. They... You know, it's 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 like it's like uh, like me. I'm dating myself, not you. But it's like me watching, uh, you know, a Charlie Chaplin film. Right. That's what to them communism is. It's like a, a you know, a, a, a moving picture that doesn't have sound in it. Right. That's and I should just it. just for a timestamp, too. I was born in 71. So I came of age through the Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan yes. era and watched the fall of the Berlin Wall. And so um, and we also hit the debt wall in yeah. Canada. And so everyone was talking about austerity. So I, I take your point, like even yeah. in my context, it has the, the same yeah, so impact. So I'm very interested to hear what you think about what is going to happen with the kids today. So the kids today, not 9-11, all I've known, they, I mean, they did, so it became a permanent war economy in the United States. Then you have the global financial crisis, all right, um, in which they're being, you know, the global financial crisis you know, uh, you know, hit people and, and families 
it very hard, right, uh, in terms of housing, but also in terms of their retirement accounts and their pensions and, and all that. And then they get the COVID, you know, pandemic. And so they have a total different tacit presupposition to what our generation had, right? So you remember in 1989 when the people in East Germany were now feeling completely liberated that the wall was down, right? These kids see the global financial crisis and they blame it on the investment banks, right? And so to their mind, you know, the evildoers are Goldman Sachs and, you know, JP Morgan rather than the totalitarian regimes of East and Central Europe and, you know, or the the Chinese in, in 19, if you remember in the June of 1989, you know, when they had the Tiananmen Square thing, you know, we think of a heroic figure as the tank man, right, who stands against the collective, you know, all the tanks are lined up and he's standing there. We forget the next day when they shifted out their military and the tanks came in and squashed the, the, the opponents and we've never heard of tank man ever again, right? We can't find him. Um, in, in, you know, or Eric Honecker having 80% approval ratings, but then his borders breaking down and, all, and, and the t regime switching like this overnight. Now, you know, we have the global financial crisis, gambling with other people's money, uh, you know, right on the heels of, of the global financial crisis, you also have the Occupy Wall Street. Um, and the reality is, is that in a country like the United States, we've had a lot of regulatory capture. We've had a permanent like military industrial complex. We have an academic industrial complex, which is tied in with their student loan debt. We have a financial industrial complex, which means that they get to gamble with other people's money, you know, and we privatize profits, but socialize the losses. So these kids, they look at the world out the window and they're like, what am I supposed to like about this? Well, can I just, you know, it could go either way, really, because so much of the messaging coming out now is that the collective matters more than the individual. And I can see how that could be embedded in how the kids act in the future. But every kid is facing a very personal loss, whether that was the cancellation of their graduation or not being yeah. able to play hockey or soccer. And that could also internalize a different way and yeah. in individualism. At the same time, layering on this, we're seeing that anyone can become a tech millionaire, Airbnb and Uber. Um, and uh, all of the challenges in the um, in the in the social media sphere with brand new alternative media news agencies right. that could also lend itself to seeing more in, uh, individualism and entrepreneurship. So, so I'm not sure which way this is going to go. I know you're not right. a predictor, but it yeah. feels to me like it's uncertain yet. Are we going to go towards more collectivism or more individualism? So I, I can only speak about the United States, and uh, so. Uh, in the last two years in the United States, we have had plenty of examples of where uh, government overregulation has stalled our ability to tackle and adjust and adapt to the reality of the coronavirus. OK, um, but that's not the stories that we hear enough. Right. So we don't hear enough about why it is that the United States doesn't have widely available home testing for everyone, right? Whereas other countries have done that. You know, why haven't we done that? Uh, we don't hear about therapeutics very much, 
you know, an evolving therapy. We hear about, you know, crazy alternative theories about therapeutics, but I mean like, you know, real therapeutics because the FDA has actually slowed down some of the approval ratings, like still there, you know, think about like even vaccine hesitancy mm-hmm. in the in the summer into the fall, they were asking everyone to get vaccines, but yet the FDA still had only emergency authorization for the vaccine. So in the first time in the United States, we were asking for a mass vaccine, you know, program while we were under an emergency approval rather than actual real approval. And we had had millions of data points at that time. So it's like, what are we waiting for? But the the, the bureaucracy moves slowly. And so one way to think about this is you have a behemoth of a bureaucracy and a very nimble adversary. And so how does a nimble adversary outdistance a behemoth bureaucracy? And we're seeing it even again, you know, today being played out. Uh, you know, yesterday, President Biden was on talking about the Omicron variant. And he said, no one, an- no one anticipated this. At the same time, he has the head of the CDC saying, we've been anticipating this kind of, you know, thing at any one time. And so, you know, I'm not making any commentary on the science or anything like that. It's just that the, the messaging and the bureaucracy could be a symbol for a great individualist awakening, just like you said. But that's not the narrative that we're hearing as much, because I think the tacit presuppositions of the current intellectual elites are ones that are much more comfortable with collectivism. So they view it as collectivism as the only way to solve the problem. And I think that for intellectuals like myself, we're trying to show or give a thought experiment that perhaps a more individualist type explanation could solve a really hairy problem. The difficulty for people from my side is that oftentimes when they address really difficult problems, uh, race, income inequality, macroeconomic instability, global pandemics, they seem to like be trying to do a Jedi mind trick. You know, there is no, there is no problem. And, 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 you know, the young kids are like in the, the remakes of the, the, um, you know, the, the Star Wars trilogies, the, the early ones, when the, the guy says, you know, he says, there is no, ex- there is, you, know, you, there, you know, you will accept Republic credits or whatever. And the guy says, your Jedi mind tricks won't work on me. And, and so that's, you know, the kids are saying that to us. So we shouldn't try to deny the difficulty of the problem. You have to embrace the problem and show how a way to deal with a nimble adversary, like, for example, a virus, is to actually have nimble entrepreneurial responses, which is more decentralized, more at the individual level, but also at the community level, right? You know, we can't deny communities are, you know, where our, our life and blood is at, right? And so how is it that we see a liberal society that, you know, individuals are free and responsible, but they get to live in caring communities? Right. And, and that's like the liberal vision uh, rather than the idea that it's just this atomistic individual that is there for themselves and only for themselves. We live in caring communities, but those caring communities are filled with individuals that are free and responsible agents that are architects of their own lives. 
And, I, and so, you know, we're going to have to talk in 10 years and see which side wins, because in America, maybe more than anywhere else, you're seeing the divisions play out because you've got blue states and red states. There seems to be a little more uniformity in other jurisdictions. So yours is going to be the great experiment to see which side wins, because yeah. I, I think this is really important that we have established the framework that collectivism is almost like a biological imperative, that it's just hardwired into our alligator brains. It's something that we... Uh, we want to be caring communities. We want to take care of each other. And you now you've got layered on top of that an intellectual elite who seem to be pressing this idea that collectivism must come first and this individual must be subverted. And it strikes me that there's a real danger that that can turn into a true socialistic or true yeah. communistic type of movement. Yeah. I don't I don't know that it needed that many people because it's funny. We were supposed to talk about Soviet Union, but I wanted to sort of before I went to Soviet oh, Union, yeah. I, mean, it's... I wanted I wanted to talk about how close we are to the conditions that might allow for some states to turn that way. And well, I wonder I if think, we can then bridge back on that. Sure. I think if we go if I if I can reference Milton Friedman again, I think one of the things that was so powerful, powerful about Milton Friedman and the way that he presented his arguments was he explained. So if you take just free to choose, so Milton and Rose Friedman's book, Free to Choose, you know, they start out by explaining the power of the market. And then they explain the tyranny of politics. And then what they do is they turn to like these different examples. And one of my favorite ones is his, his, his chapter called Who Will Protect the Consumer? And he explained it's about the FDA and he compares and contrasts market competition to government regulation over our most sacred thing, which is protecting persons and property against fraud and manipulation and all these other kind of things like that. And he gives a very strong argument for how the market mechanism could work. But the problem, I think, is that when he does that, he both shows the power of the market, but also the role of interest groups that a lot of interest groups are involved to try to concentrate benefits on themselves at the expense of everyone else. And part of the rhetorical strategy in communicating is to demonstrate that these regulations that a lot of people think are for the public interest or for the communal good actually end up by benefiting very powerful interest groups mm -hmm. at the expense of the very people they're trying to help. And as economists, one of the things that we try to do is expose that disjoint between the rhetoric and then the reality of the concentrated benefit, dispersed cost, um, you know, idea and, and these powerful interest groups. Because a lot of times it's in the interest of politicians to play the collectivist game because that's actually how they amass their power and their wealth. And, and, and exposing that is a very important aspect of what we do as economists. But again, it's very hard in this day and age because the framing, the eyeglasses that the kids are looking at it through, um, you know, almost preclude that because they think the only interest group that is benefiting or because the interest groups benefit because of money, they think that's capitalism. So they confuse crony capitalism with laissez-faire capitalism. And then they want to condemn, you know, you know, crony capitalism, but Adam Smith condemned crony capitalism. That his whole book was an attack on mercantilism. Didn't have socialism at that time. So it was mercantilism that he was attacking. And and so, you know, this Friedman recipe for the way we expose 
and, and explore the arguments, I think, is very valid, as valuable today as it was in 1980. Let me ask one yeah. other aspect. Is there a, an equivalent? You talk about crony capitalism versus free enterprise capitalism. It almost seems like there's also a, a, a reluctance to believe that bureaucracies are also rent seekers, because that's what you see as well in monopolized um, yeah. types of civil uh, uh, of public services that are delivered. We have more of that, I think, in Canada than you do in the States. But our healthcare system is a, for instance, when you look at the number of managers and how much they get paid and the layers of bureaucracy right. that is not delivering frontline services, it, what is the equivalent? Uh, that That is all, that's sort of like the bureaucratic equivalence of, of rent seeking and crony capitalism, in my view. I don't know what we would call that, though. Well, I think that the best name for that is called the administrative state. Mm. And the rise of the administrative state, which is in many ways very much a 20th century phenomena. Um, and it tracks quite well with the transformation of the ideology um, in the 20th century in North America and the English speaking world. Um, and where and, and the one of the main vehicles is the notion of what's called in, in the United States, they're called independent regulatory agencies. The FDA is one of them, but so is the Federal Reserve. These didn't exist prior to the progressive era legislation, hmm. right? And so we didn't have a, a, a Federal Reserve system until 1913. People act as if we must have had a Federal Reserve system, you know, for since 1789 or whatever. But the reality is, is that, you know, we didn't. We, we had, we had you know, a national bank. We had, you know, other kinds of banking systems. And they had their own problems. I'm not saying that they're perfect. But we didn't get our Federal Reserve System until the Progressive Era in 1913. Hmm. Um, and we got the Federal Trade Commission. If you if you look at, you know, Washington, D.C. has all the different, you know, alphabet of these agencies. And they all have their art that's tied to it. So if you look at the Federal Trade Commission, it has a beast that is harnessed. And it says man controlling commerce, you know, on it. It's the symbol that the progressives, you know, tried to pass through. I don't know what the equivalent would be in Canada, but in England, it was the Fabians in many ways and the kind of legislation that led to the beverage, uh, you know, report and then the rise of the sort of uh, English welfare state that, that they developed after the beverage report. Um, and, and so, you know, we have to look and see what are the consequences of the rise of this administrative state hmm. that became best practice in the Western democracies. Um, you know, and note what I said, the Federal Reserve was founded in 1913. When well, was the Great Depression? Right, 1929, right? And that's a monetary induced depression. So, you know, how did we respond to that? And, and this is too much of a US uh, example, but I always say it's kind of like you had a shortstop and the ball was being hit to them and it kept on, you know, going through their legs. And the way you responded was to try to give them a bigger and bigger glove rather than get a better shortstop in there or, or do a shift like they do in, in pro baseball now. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, we have to examine what the consequences are of these independent regulatory agencies or the administrative state. So that's well, the example I would use. It is. It's it's a it's a it's a good way of framing it too, because I think every 
every jurisdiction that has followed along the same path. And we all have our own alphabet soup group of agencies. But you know what's interesting is there doesn't seem to be a competitive pressure to undo. It seems like it's only growth and it only gets larger. And I don't know what happens to undo all of that. If we could figure out a way to unravel the agencies that are no longer working in the same way that free enterprise and entrepreneurship and capitalism yeah. can unravel some of the incumbent players if they're no longer efficient, then maybe we could start seeing a, a bit of a rollback. But I don't know if there's an equivalent. So I don't know if they would appreciate me referencing them, but you have two great uh, Canadian economists, political economists that are in Western Canada. Uh, uh, one of them is Breton and the other one's Weintraub. And um, the Breton book, Breton wrote a book called Competitive Government, and which tries to explain what happens when you have fiscal federalism. So there are ways to maybe try to constrain the state, but it requires us to have a kind of competition between governments. And so what we get is governance, not government. And we look at the various different governments competing with one another. And that this also goes back to the Ostroms. And one of the issues with this is the principle of subsidiarity. So we have to have a very strong principle of subsidiarity. And the simplest way to put that is, I don't need the federal government to collect my garbage, but I might need the federal government to run my military. So, but I have to find the right appropriate level at the local, state, federal level of government. And now we might say international governments as well, and as long as there's competition between these, we can maybe, and people can vote with their feet, we might end up by seeing some kind of forces that make people pay more attention or more responsive to their taxpayers. I love but what you're they, saying. They can hide the costs of their government, government overreach, then that competition gets muted and then they can get away with some of this stuff until they run into a fiscal cliff like you were talking about. And, you know, we were, you know, the, 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 the Soviet Union, like in your, your, what you were talking about, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, December 26, but Eastern Central Europe, that's 1989, the fall of nations. Um, but a lot of that took the, so much of the occupying of people's imagination. And they forgot that during the early 1990s, it's also the case that all the Nordic countries, also met their fiscal cliff hmm. and, and, and they had to go through radical reforms. And so that's why, you know, when Bernie Sanders in the United States says things like, we just want to be like Denmark, you know, the president of Denmark writes back and says, but we're not a socialist country. I don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, the Fraser, the, if you look at the economic freedom index, which I'm going to pick prior to COVID because, COVID has screwed up everything, you know, in terms of even the way we think about countries. But if I go to the measures before COVID, you know, you look at a country like Sweden and a country like Sweden is much more, you know, economically free than, say, the United States at times. Right. I mean, in terms of the ranking, look, just look at the rankings. And these are rankings that don't make sense to the kid because they've been told like something else. You're, but, you're, totally, you know, you're completely Canada, right. For example, is extremely open trade. I mean, excuse me, uh, Sweden, extremely open trade. So it's a very liberal country in that regard. And well, so, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we have to sort a lot out uh, to understand how governments compete with one another to put pressure so that they are more responsive to their citizenry.
you uh, you've put a lot on the table. And in fact, you've given me probably, I think, three or four follow up podcasts that I'm going to have to do, because I, I think you're quite right. This conception of socialism that we have comes from uh, Denmark, Norway, Sweden. And I, I absolutely take your point that it's not socialism in the same sense that the Soviet Union was. I remember uh, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev came to Alberta. Uh, on a speaking tour after the, the collapse. And so I was sitting beside somebody who'd been from the former Czech Republic. And I was talking about how we were on this path to socialism in, in Canada. And he said, you have no idea what socialism yeah. is. And, and so I think that's, let's then talk about what socialism means in the Soviet context. Yeah. Because I, I, I will have to go way back to the beginning. And I, I need to understand a little more about what happened in 1917 in the so in Russia that created the conditions for this small group of elites to completely upend their society. It seems sort of remarkable that it could have happened so quickly. What what sort of touchstones can you can you point us to? Because the life under the czars wasn't perfect either. But no. what a dramatic response to it. So uh, let me just just end end our previous conversation just with a reference to your listeners, which is the economic historian Price Fishbeck has a National Bureau of Economic Research paper, which compares welfare spending in the United States and in the Nordic countries. And I'm just going to just give people that reference and look at because it's mind blowing when you look at actually the welfare spending per capita that takes place in both of these units and yet the labels that we give to each of these kind of countries. So are you going to, I would presume that you, by that reference, you mean that the United States welfare spending is higher than the Nordic it's, countries? It's, it's as high. Interesting. Yeah. So it has and, nothing, and, that's right. So it has nothing really, this is, I think the misconception is that we think that large amounts of government spending is a measure of socialism, but it's, it really, I guess, when you look academically, it's about who controls the means of production. It's, it's about scope, not scale. So, you know, uh, Keynes, I, I don't give many positive references to Keynes in my work, but Keynes had a brilliant uh, statement where he was asked about the budget and he said, uh, you know, uh, balancing the budget. And he said that uh, trying to make a fat man skinny by tightening his belt doesn't work. You have to make the fat man skinny, then his belt is looser. All right. And so um, it, it, that's an issue of the difference between arguing on the scale of government versus the scope of government. So if I could get the government to be smaller in scope, then what's going to happen is it's it's fiscal affairs will be different than if I allow the government to grow and grow and grow. And let me give you another weird reference. And then I'll, I will. I promise to get to your serious question about socialism. But I was a student of Jim Buchanan's. Uh, you know, he, he's a Nobel Prize winner in 1986. Fraser has a fantastic uh, little essential scholars on Buchanan that everyone should look at. Um, but uh, Buchanan was an expert on, on fiscal affairs. That's public economics. That's what he was. Um, uh, he won his Nobel Prize for. And he would ask us in class the following question. Um, he would say, and I'm not going to imitate him now. I'm just going to talk, right? But, uh, but he'd said that if a fly grew nine times its size, it said that it could no longer fly. Hmm. So if you took a fly and tried to scale it up to nine times its size, architecturally, the weight of the fly would break its wings. All right? So physicists have figured this out or whatever, right? You know, people a lot smarter than I am. And so Buchanan would then ask us, what does that say about fiscal dimensionality? 
Hmm. Right. That's a problem of dimensionality of the fly. And they would say, what's that about fiscal dimensionality? So is there a way in which you grow and grow and grow the, the responsibilities of the state, but as you grow them, they can't do their job anymore? And that leads us to an endless cycle, which is government grows because it fails and it fails because it grows. And that explains to a large extent why the cycle goes like this rather than unwinding unless we do something other. Well, and one now, more thing, it your... I think it also probably presumes that there is still this academic uh, ideal that collectivism ultimately works and government should ultimately work. And so the growth well, of that... government isn't a problem. And yet... yeah, yeah. That... Yeah, I was leaving that aside for the man. Yes, that's a, besides that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Yes, that actually is a, a very big point, which is, again, one of the reasons why you might want to have competition is that technology changes what the scale and scope is all the time. You know, what used to be something that was a public good could now be a private good, you know, and, and, and so we should be thinking about what technology can be used to reduce the scope of government right to, to make the fat man skinnier rather than, than than that but let me go to socialism yes i think it's extremely important to understand that they were coming out of the war so the czarist system was a, a kind of very much a, a mercantilist system so if you look at, at data statistics on the country um prior to world war one uh, you would see that the country had, in fact, had an industry. It was probably about the fifth or sixth largest industrial economy in the world. But it was still largely a peasant economy. Hmm. It was concentrated in a, you know, in a very small group of elites. Um, uh, and, and in many ways, those who had been given favor by the czarist regime, like all mercantilist systems operate. But nevertheless, it wasn't like a bankrupt, poor country. It was an industrialized country that had 70% of its population was peasantry. Now, what happens is the war, you know, breaks out and they're fighting in the war. And the war is, is, is very unpopular. People are, you know, massive casualties and, and disruptions and whatnot. And so then the young people are coming back you know, home, and the Bolsheviks were able to work an alliance, which was to get Russia out of the war and promise bread to the peasants. Like that was their, that was their slogan, basically. You know, we're going to, you know, and so they were able to work on, uh, you know, and the regime started, it was so unpopular that the collapse of the regime isn't in the October Revolution. It starts much earlier Right. When then you get a provisional government in and everything like that. It's just that the czar, uh, you know, the czar wasn't dethroned in the it, or wasn't assassinated yet until later. But they were no longer in power starting in the spring. Uh, right. And Lenin returns in April of, of uh, 1917 um, and the October Revolution takes place. And they announced that they are going to establish a full-on socialist regime. Uh, the provisional government, which was filled with the cadet party and some others, social democratic parties, um, they were not able to hold the center. And so, and the system continued to deteriorate. And they were very strategic in exploiting the opportunity and being able to go. And their idea wasn't so here's a, an important point to understand from their point of view. 
They all they wanted to do was beat the Paris Commune. Like, you know, so the Paris Paris Commune, I think I might get the days wrong. So please correct me. But it's something like it lasted for like 52 days. That was it. And then it collapsed. And all they wanted to do was beat 52 days because their belief was, from a Marxist point of view, was that they were going to be the uh, spear that would shake the tree of revolutionary movements throughout all of Europe after the war. So Germany would topple, right? And then all the other countries would follow suit. And so then they'd have international socialism and that would save them, right? And so what happened was they they pursued the extreme socialist agenda, you know, in the, in the book, 10 Days That Shook the World, which is a book about the, the revolution. There's a great, you know, picture that you can draw in your head that John Reed writes, which is Lenin, the revolution has succeeded. They've, they've, you know, taken over the Winter Palace. They, they, you know, come in and he grabs the podium, right? And he says, now we will construct socialism and just leave, you know, in the place. Professor, can I, can I actually, can I, can I put a few dates yeah. on the table? Because that's what I found so shocking about it was how quick this occurred. So in one of your papers, you talk about first November 8th, 1917, Council of the People's Commissars form. Same day, decree on land, abolished the landlord's right of a property and called for the confiscation of landed estates. November 27th, just a few weeks later, decree on workers' control over production. Uh, you've got on November, uh, December 27th, the declaration of the nationalization of banks. They moved fast. And it actually makes sense in the context of, well, we only have two months to do this. So we better get cracking. Well, they also but, were true believers, mm -hmm. right? So one way to understand you know, what they were trying to do is to read Bukharin and Priyo Brzezinski's book, The ABCs of Communism. I mean, it's, it's, they lay it. So Nikolai Bukharin is an amazing figure because he was the architect of communism. It gets later called war communism, but at the time it was just called communism. The phrase war communism is imposed on the early period by people who want to defend it because they want to claim that the reason why communism failed so miserably between 1917 and 1921 was because of foreign interventions and the civil war with the reds fighting the white armies and everything. But one way to, to address that hypothesis is to look at the extreme centralizations. And if you think about when it is that the civil war broke out and when it is that it was, was ended, if you look just what you were just talking about, they were engaged in extreme centralization before centralization. And after they had their peace with the Civil War, they then passed the policy that all enterprises, five employees or less, were now nationalized. In that earlier one, you had to be a bigger enterprise. But so they centralized even more after the war than they did, you know, uh, you know, during the war. So I think that hypothesis that it that the war. Uh, the war obviously shaped things, but the war as a cause is not necessarily uh, a, a hypothesis that can be sustained. What makes yeah. me nervous is that you do have, uh, say, the World Economic Forum being being fairly overt in saying things like by 19 uh, by 2030, you will own nothing and you will be happy. They have a vision that by, you know, in nine short years, 
that there's something wrong with private property. And that's what makes me a bit nervous is that well, those who, I, I think we should take people seriously when they yeah, say yeah, they so, want to abolish private property. Yes, yeah, so COVID has been a major thing. I mean, this is a great, there's, there's a lot of ways to go with all this. I love the fact that you pointed out the exact policies because that all those policies are very consistent with the animating ideology, right? So if you believe that private property is the alienating ability of mankind, what you're going to do is you're going to abolish private property. I'll, I'll give you one other thing from Marx, and then I'm going to address your old forum things. But Marx used to like to call distinguish between what he called petty bourgeois socialism and real socialism, right? Real scientific socialism. And one of his examples he used about petty bourgeois socialists was where they tried to do things like, um, you know, lower the work, the work week, right, and, and improve the conditions of the workers and things like that. And one of them was to try to, you know, do things with money, right? And so what, what he said was, because money is the root of all evil, right? And they would say, oh, look, we can just abolish money and then we'll be okay. And what Mark said is, look, um, you, you have to understand is that trying to abolish money while leaving a private property system in place is similar to trying to get, uh, fix Catholicism by getting rid of the Pope. He said, what you need to do is get rid of Catholicism, then you don't need a Pope. And so I have to get rid of private property rights. And if I get rid of that, then I don't need money, right? Then I can have production for direct use rather than production for exchange. But if I just get rid of money, but I leave private property rights and thing, I still have the problem of Catholicism, right? It's just that, you know, money is no longer the thing that's causing a problem. So when you look at those Bukharin proposals, because he was the architect of all of that, when you look at those proposals that he's doing in 1918, 1919, 1920, and before he gets all the way up to 1921, when she then switches gears in his, his, his proposals, um, they are all animated very much by Marxism. Okay. Now, the current World Forum or the Great Reset, which is what it's called, is not as much motivated by Marxism as much as it's motivated by what you might call techno-socialism. So a lot of these people believe that we've come to an area where technology is such that, one, we can get rid of scarcity by technological bursts of productivity. So therefore, the distribution of income is not tied to productivity, but as a matter of politics. And the second one is the reason why they don't worry about the incentive compatibilities and all those things like that. So, you know, going back to your example about slicing, you know, your two kids go, two kids have the cake. And what you do is you slice, you choose. And then the kid like measures it down to the very thing. So no one wants to get ripped off or whatever. But there's another metaphor, which we talk about, which is that the, the way we slice the pie up is going to determine the size of the pie. So, you know, because it, it, it incentivizes people to, you know, want to work and build a bigger pie or whatever. Right. And they don't worry about that because in their techno socialism, digital socialism, it goes by in a lot of ways. Uh, what has happened is that the burst of productivity technology will give us will mean that we'll end up in a world where we have the singularity, hmm. basically, which is that the growth rate will go so exponentially up that we won't even have to work. In some of these models, robots will do like the work for us and other things like that. And so therefore productivity would be handled by the machines 
And the distribution, again, would be an aspect of government largesse paying it out to all of us so that we could maximize our leisure and things like that. You know, a, a lot of this is, is, is very weird because we're not quite there yet with the technology, though people think that we are. Uh, I mean, we can't, you know, you're in a, a country which loves hockey, okay? Um, so I only know examples from soccer and from basketball, but I'm going to try to use a hockey example so that listeners might relate. But um, if you ever watch a robot play chess, the robot's a master because it's a fixed set of algorithms that are there and the, and the robot can go through them. The computer can go through them very, very fast and pick what optimal strategies are. But now try to make that robot play hockey. Hmm. All right. And the adaptability and adjustments on the fly. The whole point about hockey is that the hockey player is probably getting a puck hit to them in a way that they've never quite seen the same another time. But the master can adjust and adapt on the fly and be able to be completely skilled and adroit in being able to deal with it. Right. And that requires. And so hockey would be what we would call a wicket learning environment in which the parameters are free not fixed. Whereas in a, a chess game, the parameters are fixed and therefore the algorithms are just a matter of churning through them. And so computers are really good at a world where we have a kind learning environment, but they haven't been very good in environments of wicked learning environments. And now ask yourself, what is it like when a company tries to enter into a market? Is it more like a kind learning environment or is it more like a wicket learning environment where they have to adjust and adapt to the changing consumer preferences and the circumstances of time and place and they need to constantly be shifting they're not just doing the same thing they don't wake up and do the same thing day after day year after year right this is this is one of the things that's you know the greatest regulator of market activity is the market itself because if I don't recognize the opportunity, a competitor surely will. Right. Well, like I wonder if the conception is. I think there's a, a, a sort of a apocryphal story. I don't know how true it is, but the notion I think it was in the late 1800s was that we've invented everything we could possibly ever want to invent, so we should close the patent office. Yeah. And I wonder if that's the conception of the future. It's that it's not. A, it's point, not apocryphal. It I is have, true. I have a textbook uh, called The Economic Way of Thinking. I'm sure there's a Canadian edition of it somewhere. Um, and in the textbook, we go through the list of all the famous pronouncements by people telling us that technology is over. Decca Records, no one likes guitar music. It's a rejection letter to the Beatles. All right. Uh, you know, Bill Gates himself, who the heck would ever need more than 64K on a computer? Uh, you know, and the head of the patent office, everything that's been uh, invented has already been invented, right? And so, you know, and that's 1900. So it, it's a, it, it, you know, I love this new book out in the last year by Matt Ridley. So if you get a chance to talk to him, you definitely should. It's called, uh, uh, you know, How Innovation Works. And he has a great line in it. He says, innovation is the child of freedom and the parent of prosperity. And, and where does innovation come from? Well, innovation comes from our adaptation, adjustments, and creativity in the face of really difficult problems, right? And that's what we have to tap into the, in order for the... So one of the biggest differences between, say, a, a 
socialist mindset and a more liberal mindset is that a, 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 a socialist mindset believes that extraordinary people can do extraordinary things if given the power to achieve them. And so that is usually the educated elite, right? I, you know, I, I, I whereas a liberal believes ordinary people mm-hmm. can do extraordinary things if just given the freedom to pursue what they see in front of them. Okay. And I think those differences, what Thomas Sowell would refer to as clash of visions between those two different perspectives explains much. And right now, I think you're right that it's this other side that's, that is the dominant one among the intelligentsia class. But you know what's interesting? During our youth, there was a short period of time when it went the other way, right? That's what Thatcher and Reagan kind of, you know, pushed against. That's the, you know, the failure of the Soviet reforms under Gorbachev ended up by pushing towards an idea of freeing up the economy, what happened in Poland, the Czech Republic, Hungary. But if we look 30 years later, a lot of those experiments have have reversed, right? And 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 they've gone back to a state-centric model of economic regulation, of crony capitalism, of the oligarchs, you know, these kind of things. And uh and it's discredited some of the more uh Friedman type ideas, and people need to sort through all that and figure it out. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that's important because I think that kind of recalibrates my thinking on it. It's not so much that the technocrats believe that we're going to have an end of innovation because we've invented everything. It's that they believe as central planners with a lot of money and the machine learning and artificial intelligence, that they're the only ones who need to invent anything new. And the rest of us can just sit around with our Oculus and look at virtual uh, reality all day while robots go out and make our food for us and we get paid guaranteed annual income. Like I, I guess the thing that I'm interested in is do ordinary people real want that future or is that what is what is needed is that ordinary people need to realize the the, the benefit of, of having more liberation that 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 that, yeah. that that freedom to be able to self-actualize and become whatever you want is kind of central but there does seem to be almost a demoralization of that that ordinary person and I need government to take care of me and maybe I can't achieve and I'm, my income is not keeping up and I'm doing worse than my parents. There there is a bit of a demoralization that's happened. I think generally speaking, that's almost paved the way for the, this kind of thinking to take root. So I think that, so again, to invoke Jim Buchanan, you know, he had a a wonderful essay in the early two thousands called afraid to be free. And what his argument in the afraid to be free uh, piece is that um, we've defeated managerial socialism. So that doesn't inspire anyone. Right. He was he's a little too optimistic, I think, when we look at things like, you know, in response to the global financial crisis or in response to this pandemic, managerial socialism has come back in full force. But um, in 2005, when he's writing it, he's like, no, we're not going to consider managerial socialism. And we also don't really want a nanny in the mm-hmm. sense that we don't want to have, uh, you know, a paternalistic socialism. But what we want is what he called parental socialism. That is that we want to be protected against the downside risk of life. And so, you know, 
this goes back to an old Tocqueville line, right? Which is that, you know, we need to be willing to wrestle with the, uh, you know, cares of thinkings and the troubles of living. And if we're not willing to do that, you know, our spirit is going to be atrophied and we're not going to be self-governing citizens, right? We can't be. Um, but it, and so therefore we want a parent. And I think that we've seen a lot of insecurities. And if you combine that with a teaching that has gone on for at least two decades, which is in many ways captured and solidified in Michael Sandel's most recent book against the tyranny of merit, uh, which is the idea that um, there is no such thing as merit, right? It, it, it's, there's, it's what we, what we might be called lucky egalitarianism, right? Some of us are just more lucky than others. And our privileged position allows us to get the bennies. And it's not because we're more alert to the opportunity or that we're more skilled or that we worked harder. It's just that, you know, we were lucky, you know, we were in the right position. So if we don't have any claim to our resources, resources that are unearned mm. are confiscatable. And there shouldn't be an issue of justice with confiscating resources that you don't really own because you just got them lucky. And I think a whole generation of kids have been raised with that as their ethos. And that fuels with their experience in which they see a lot of injustice out there in the world, because again, the financial crisis, socialized losses, but privatized profits, uh, you know, the, the global pandemic actually ended up by benefiting the Zoom class and impoverishing the non-Zoom class. Uh, and they see that, their eyes are not blind to that. And so they think of that as, oh, money's involved, that must mean what capitalism is. So mm -hmm. capitalism in their mind is Bernie Madoff and, you know, these kind of people. And so we need to really kind of, you know, wrestle with that and address those issues. And again, not engage in Jedi mind tricks, right? <laughs> Which is the natural, you're like, no, no, Bernie Madoff isn't, you know, whatever. And and that is true. Bernie Madoff is, is fraud and, you know, violations of property and contract and consent not the embodiment of property contract and consent. But we have to frame our discussion of those things in ways that our current audience can listen to and hear rather than in ways that turn them off. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck in a situation where people just don't resonate with the market society. Well, it's interesting. One more thing I would add to what you said as well is that we also had these guaranteed incomes that were given, regardless of what your income before COVID or sure. before you ended up with a shutdown was. Everybody got there. In Canada, it was 2000 a month. I think in the US, it was a little bit less than that. And so it's kind of implanted this idea in people's minds, which may be a bit different than what happened in the Soviet Union, that money isn't the root of all evil. It's all you need to do is print enough money and everybody can have everything that they want. Yeah. And so that's, I, I need to talk to you a bit about, about the sort of the tautology that you put out that the that the 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 true socialists the communists put forward is that you abolish private property then you won't need markets if you don't need markets then you don't need prices because we haven't talked about the price mechanism um and pricing because i'm quite nervous about all of this money printing 
leading to hyperinflation. And we keep hearing from all of our technocrats, don't worry, it's just what you know, just short-term price adjustments. This is not going to lead to inflation. We've managed to somehow disconnect printing money from general general price increases. And so I think this issue of money and inflation and cost of living is going to become very important in the future. But we need to establish why pricing and, and transparent pricing and real pricing is so important before we can understand what, uh, what, what governments might be doing to mess it up. Well, like with all your questions, Dale, these are like extremely uh, you know, deep questions and you're asking an academic who gets paid by the word to, to try to try to give you an answer. But uh, uh, let, I'll try here. Um, I mean, because these are these are very, very important. I think that your listeners would do a wonderful service to themselves if they went on YouTube and looked up Milton Friedman giving a lecture on why inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. Uh, now, it's an out of date lecture, but it's so relevant to today because what he shows is what happens when you increase the money supply, what happens to your price level in that economy, so your CPI. So he's looking at the CPI and he's looking then also at the money supply. Now, it's extremely important. Friedman didn't make this mistake. Um, in this presentation, he's doing it for a general audience, so it's straightforward. But that's what leads to Friedman saying inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. And when we look out in the world today, we have to be very careful about what are the inflationary pressures and what are the pressures that are caused by the supply chain uh, mm -hmm. and the economy simultaneously opened up. So there's a lot of issues that were tied to the supply chain restrictions, okay? One of them is actually related to what you just got talking about, which had to do with people that got paid not to work and then trying to get them to come back into the labor force. And if you look, this affects things like or, or just the lagging of the industries in the United States. For example, we had a real interesting market in rental cars because as the market for travel fell drastically in 2020, from the spring into the summer, in order to stay afloat, the rental companies sold their fleet, hmm. right? Now we start getting the coronavirus is a little bit under control. We open up the, we get, you know, vaccines. The economy is starting to open back up. Well, people need to rent a car, but there's no cars because they sold off their fleet. So they have, that takes some time to restock. And this of course had all kinds of you know, there's there's other examples of supply chain disruptions, one of which is chips. So you couldn't even build new cars because the chips weren't there, you know, because they hadn't done it. But so this this spreads throughout the entire economy. And one of the big ones is truckers. To be honest with you, the people that move the goods and services for us, you know, they weren't they 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 stopped moving goods and services, they stopped working, they therefore went on and you know, so this was not family leave issues, right? Which is what the administration kept on saying, you know, we need to pass our big bill because it's all about family leave. It's mothers who are at home. Well, it, yes, that's true, but it's not mothers who are driving the trucks for the most part and all these other people that are not there or restaurant workers that didn't go back to working in the restaurant and everything like that or other people who waited until their $2,000 a, a month or $1,200 a month ran out. You know, the, the payments ran out. And so that that takes a while for all that to then readjust. At the same time, 
the economy's opening up. So you have a supply that's shifted back to use your old supply and demand curves, shifted back in your demand curve that shifted out. Well, that's going to lead to higher prices. Mm-hmm. That's nothing to do with inflation. Now, where does inflation come in? Inflation comes in in the policies going all the way back to Ben Bernanke. I'm talking just the United States now, all the way back to Ben Bernanke and not only the quantitative easing, but the innovation was what he called Operation Twist, which was the buying of the bond in the bonds market. So Bernanke's big thing was 85 billion. All right, Powell was well into the over 100 billion a month into the bond market. And the reason why that's important is because it keeps long-term interest rates suppressed, which means that the normal hedges against inflation and the signals to hedge against inflation aren't there. So money supply has to match with money demand. Inflation is when you have money supply in excess of money demand, all right, that's going on. And the way we look at that is we look at the broadest measure of money. So, you know, again, just in the United States, M1, uh, you know, all the way through the various different measures of money. And we look and see, you know, what's gone on with the Fed balance sheet. And when you look at it, it scares the bejesus out of you, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's like, well, wait a minute, what the hell? And then you're combining that with the debt levels, right, that we have and the servicing of the debt, okay? And now we're back in Adam Smith's old juggling trick. So in the fifth book of the Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith describes the juggling trick that destroys economies ancient as well as modern. And he says it's the governmental habit to run deficits, accumulate debt, and then debase the currency to try to pay the debt off with cheaper units, right? And when this gets out of control... Uh, you know, and, and that leads to the problems. And current thinking in monetary policy is that the authorities have the ability to manage this juggling trick. So rather than saying central bankers shouldn't juggle, what we now teach them is become master jugglers. And by the way, do it with one foot on a rubber ball while you're bouncing. And, you know, just don't ever drop one of the one of the, the, the clubs. And so we're expecting these central bankers to soft land us in any of these errors. And again, to invoke Milton Friedman, as he says, a sincere error hmm. by a few individuals that threatens the entire economy is probably an institution we can't afford to have. It's not a robust institution. And so in response to this kind of Friedman-type warning, Hayek warning, you know, there's arguments that have risen up called modern monetary theory and other kinds of arguments which are, you know, and there's sophisticated versions of it. Stephanie Kelton is very sophisticated mm-hmm. presenter of her position. And then there's unsophisticated positions, which, you know, some of our Congress people in D.C., you know, hold, uh, and which basically says just print money you know, just spend money. There's no end to it. The government gets to decide, you know, what it's going to do anyway. So just do it and we can all do it and stop worrying about it. You know, Stephanie Kilton doesn't say that. that that's not what she says. But, you know, uh, in many ways, some of the more progressive members of Congress do say that. Um, and, and therefore, everything's funded. And there's some funkiness in the way that even the administration in the United States now talks about 
that, oh, our programs are already funded. It wouldn't even cause like, you know, a concern. But I, I do get nervous when I listen to critics of the current administration, because sometimes I think they're confusing the normal market adjustment of prices with inflation and they're acute and they're uh, sometimes uh, jumping too fast in the juggling trick from the debt deficits to the debt to the debasement. And I think we need to be more sophisticated in those discussions. Well, and I have a new it, book it, out called Money and the Rule of Law. It's published by Cambridge. It came out just earlier this year. And we go through some of those arguments. Um, it's a very academic book, um, but it builds on the work of, of Hayek and Friedman and Jim Buchanan. So, yeah. Well, it, it may well be that they think that they can manage their way through this and we aren't going to end up with a hyperinflationary environment. But it could also be that you've got an ideological premise to this. So if yeah. the original socialists felt that we didn't need private property yeah. and that we didn't need price signals, then yeah. perhaps cratering the, the currency and creating um, a, a mess of the price signals, I, I have to wonder if it's actually by design. But I need to understand more about why the socialist view believes that markets can work in the absence of prices. I don't, well, I don't, don't know what they, the they markets. So well, they're going to. So well, hold, the, on, the, just hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me just let me let me just sort okay. of map this out. Um, if I'm not a baker, I still need to be able to get bread. And if I don't have a a, a way to purchase bread because you've eliminated private property and you eliminated pricing, how am I supposed to get bread? I guess I don't understand what the conception of how goods get yeah. produced and traded is if you if you take away prices and you take away private property. What is the ideal? So let me start by just pointing out that you sound very much like the great economist Ludwig von Mises, who when confronted with uh, the socialist proposals said he had a very simple answer which to the question to all of his socialist comrades, which is how will the chickens fly into the mouse of, of the comrades? Please just tell me, you know, how will they get there? Um, I think if you, if you work through the argument um, and, and try to be as most sympathetic as you possibly can, what they're trying to do is come up with a mechanism which will rationalize production. So waste in production comes about because we produce for exchange or for profit and not for direct use. Mm -hmm. So if we could find a way that we would produce directly for direct use, we get rid of the waste that's associated with profits and losses. Because Right? So we're going to get rid of that. So now we've rationalized production. Once we rationalize production, we're going to see a burst of productivity, which will, and this is the phrase, that was used at the time, we'll move from the kingdom of necessity to the kingdom of freedom. Because, and, and so in Marx's essay, The German Ideology, he says we'll be able to uh, uh, go beyond the division of labor because we won't have to be a hunter, a hunter or a fisherman or a poet. We in fact could be all of those things and we just keep rotating. It's also why they didn't think a standing bureaucracy would be a problem. Because today, Danielle will be in charge of the planning board. Tomorrow, Pete will be in charge. And then the next day, the next person will be in charge. And none of us will ever try to use the power for our to influence you know, the bennies towards us because we're going to have a new socialist being. 
all right? Which is, th these are the kind of arguments which were made before economists got involved in the debate, all right? And it's the reason why the Austrian economists focused on this issue of economic calculation or what later became known as a knowledge problem. And the reason why they focus on, as opposed to an incentive problem. The oldest argument in intellectual history is that collective property causes distorted incentives. It's what Aristotle argued against Plato. So we didn't need modern economics to tell you that collective ownership leads to people not paying attention to details, right? But the Mises at the time, of, you know, you asked about prior to World War One and, and during that time, in German intellectual conversations, the universities were dominated by what they called socialists of the chair. And what the, the economists didn't like Adam Smith. So they rejected Adam Smith in British classical economics. And they would pronounce from their position what their policy preferences were. Like, you know, we should have, we should be free trade. We should have high tariffs. We should do this, blah, 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 right? We should have the Bismarckian welfare state. And so they would just state their normative preferences, right? And so Max Weber, the great German sociologist, was like, no one can have an argument with any of you. Because it's just your preference. It's like saying I like chocolate ice cream, right? And I ice cream back. No, I like vanilla ice cream. And so we go nowhere. So Weber came up with a technique in which he said, okay, we're going to be able to advance a conversation. I'm going to treat your ends as given. Tell me what it is you want to achieve. And then I'm even going to go further. I'm going to say, tell me what means you're going to now use to achieve those goals. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to limit my scientific analysis to the effectiveness of your chosen means to your given ends. And if I can show you that your given and chosen means are not compatible with your given ends, you either have to give up your ends or pick a different set of means, okay? And that's what Mises tries to do in the critique of socialism. He, he's not Ayn Rand. So Ayn Rand was a critic of the morality of socialism, mm -hmm. right? She just objected to collectivism um, as a whole. And going back to your earlier idea, you know, one of the things that I keep on thinking is that we need a new Ayn Rand to, to talk to the next generation, right? Because she talked to an earlier generation and we now need another writer that's not writing academic articles like I write or something like that, but someone who can write artistically and communicate with the current generation about the benefits of individualism and the horrors of collectivism. So that put that aside, but as a scientist, as a, as a scholar, I'm gonna treat those ends as given and, and then say, what are your means that you wanna achieve those goals? And then I wanna look and see whether or not those means are compatible with those ends. And if they are, I'm gonna say, okay, now can they be exploited by opportunistic agents? Right. So, yes, in theory, those means could achieve that end, but they won't achieve that end if any of the individuals that are in charge are like opportunistic and want to benefit themselves or their friends at the expense of the collective good. And then if that's not the case, then your your theory might be possible, but it would be impractical. So our social systems become either <clears throat> um, acceptable potential utopias or workable utopias or impractical utopias or impossible systems. And I think that a judicious reading of socialism doesn't put it in the impractical 
It puts it in the impossible. It just cannot be achieved. So, Professor, let me get you to return to something, because I think this is maybe my fundamental difference of opinion with the socialists. I've got many of them. But this notion that the market produces inefficiency, and it sounds like you're saying it's that profit is presumed to be the de facto indicator that there's inefficiency. So you eliminate profit and then all of a sudden you'll increase productivity. And yet it strikes me in, in your writing and in what I've read about, about price signals is that that is actually what creates the efficiency yeah. is that if you, uh, and explain, explain how that is, explain why the price is so important to the suppliers and the demanders to make sure that those, that, that we produce an optimal, an optimal quantity and why it actually is more efficient than trying to have central planners figure this all out. Yeah, so I mean, that's what I said earlier about economic calculation playing the role of sorting between the technologically feasible to the economically viable is, you know, the key is a key aspect of this. So the price system, what it does through prices, profit and loss, and the array of property ownership. So if we think about what's going on in an economic system, we have right now, right, we have property rights that are in someone's control. We have prices that are posted about products. And through the exchanges, we either are making profits or we're making losses. Okay. Now, what are they doing? They're trying to coordinate suppliers and demanders, right? And, and reallocate resources so that the most willing demanders, those who are willing to pay the highest price, and the most and the most willing suppliers, those who in fact would sell the good for the lowest price come into contact with each other. And that way we realize all the gains from trade, right? And if we realize the gains from trade, we end up by exhausting what economists call Pareto efficiency. No one could be made better off without making someone else worse off and, and so forth and so on. But it's not just that, we get exchange efficiency, we get technological production efficiency, we produce goods at the lowest cost that we can produce them at, and we get product mix efficiency. We get the kind of goods that the consumers are desiring, okay? Now, so we have property prices and profit loss on the one side. On the other side, we have these underlying conditions, which are the taste of the consumers, the existing technology, and the resource availability. Just those are, the, these are these underlying conditions. And what the market mechanism does is it is agitating so that the underlying conditions of taste, technology, and resource availability are mapped by the prices, prof, uh, the excuse me, the property prices and profit loss in the market. And any time that there's a disjoint between those two things, there's a profit opportunity for someone who can actually exploit that. And where do the profit opportunities come from? From buying low and selling high. That's your prices. Mm -hmm. What you don't want to do is buy high and sell low right? Should have had a V8, you know? And, and so what happens is the market not only tells us how to have quickly, it, 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 it gives us quick information. It also guides us towards correct information about, you know, what are the resource availability? And these are just old wisdoms. Remember like some of the old proverbs, a fool and his money is soon parted, mm -hmm. right? So that's, where's that? Let's make sense out of that. Let me, right? let that's me see. The profit and loss system. Let me see if I can understand why the technocratic socialists see the world a bit differently. It strikes me then that they must either believe one of two things. One is 
that they can use AI and machine learning to figure all this out, that because we are now able to process so much information that they would be able to do better than supply and demand. That might be one thing. The other thing though, is that the technology is odd in that once you've gone through all the work of creating a product, you can, uh, it's sort of infinite, you can sell it to an infinite number of customers without increasing your costs. Just think yeah. about a video game or something that you could put online. An infinite number of people can pay to access that. So you get almost like an infinite amount of profits that's disconnected from the cost of goods. And that is maybe a new type of product that is changing the way that we think about supply and demand. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe this rules of supply and demand still hold. But it is part of the reason why we're talking about not just billionaires, but potential trillionaires, yeah. is that this is a very different type of market that we're in. So... That, that issue goes back to the 1990s when people started to recognize that we were entering into a new era and we we're going to have this kind of idea where uh, basically the, the, the uh, marginal costs uh, mm -hmm. are, you know, disappear in some level, right, of, of doing this. And so we have to look at these various things. And this, is, this feeds into what's called the platform economy and all of those issues like that. But whenever I talk about these things, and again, I don't want to be doing a Jedi mind trick. And I apologize if it sounds like I'm about to do one, but, you know, kids always say stuff to me about that. And I say, do you remember MySpace? You know, <laughs> of course you don't, because, you know, Facebook wiped it all out of the thing. And so I would expect that I would see things, you know, change unless government doesn't let it change. Right. If all of a sudden. So to me, it's not surprising when I see, you know, Mark Zuckerberg show up at congressional hearings and say, I will gladly be on the committee to regulate, you know, the, the, the platform economies. Of course, he's going to be on there. That's what we call regulatory capture. 2021 is the 50th anniversary of George Stigler's famous article on the economic theory of regulation. And I, I tell all my students all the time, you got to go back and read that article and then look up the Carmen Segaria tapes. So after the financial crisis in 2008, uh, the Fed decided to engage in oversight, regulatory oversight of the big investment banks. Carmen Segari is a very publicly in interested uh, you know, lawyer, and she decided to leave her practice to go work at the Fed as a regulatory oversight of the investment banks. And then she found out that the investment banks were, were in fact capturing the Fed, right? They're very, the Fed is trying to regulate them, but it's actually they're paying the, they're, they're playing by the tune of the investment banks. And this technology allowed her to come in and just press record and put it inside of her bag. And she has like five hours of tapes that you can get on national public radio here. Um, just look it up, Carmen Segaria. And it's like unbelievable because it's all about how Goldman Sachs is telling the Fed how it is that they're going to run their business. And while the Fed is supposed to have regulatory oversight, that passed with the impact of a like cotton ball because no one wants to hear that, right? They don't want to hear that. Zuckerberg raising his hand and saying, I'll regulate, you know, they don't want to hear that that's capturing, you know, what's going on. And so the theory of capture, regulatory capture. So I'll just tell you a funny story, funny to me. I don't know if it will be to your listeners, but many, many years ago, I was at the London School of Economics and Ann Kruger, who's a very established economist and a very uh, a famous economist, she says, no offense to my George Mason friends here, you know, she says, no offense to my George Mason friends, but we've learned, you know, that we like the market. But what we want is a market economy 
that is that has reasonable regulation that's not captured by interest. And I raised my hand mm. and I said, what if that's a null set? <laughs> and one of the conference bigwigs is a Russian economist at Harvard, Andre Schleifer. And he says, why are you so unreasonable? <laughs> you know, like, so, so, you know, that sort of stopped the conversation, but no one's ever answered that question for me, which is, you know, we want reasonable regulation. It's not captured by interest. But can you actually point to regulations that don't have interest groups behind them? So George Stigler's article comes roaring back to the forefront 50 years after it's written. And I think that that we should be talking to the kids about these kind of ideas and providing them with the evidence and the intellectual eyeglasses so they can see this to go back to the Friedman point again, which is that it's not only the power of the market, but also what happens when we allow politics to intervene in markets, that we get not only the inefficiencies of political intervention, but we also get the special privileges of political intervention, which in fact lead to the very inequalities that they find so abhorrent. Can we, I want you, I often wonder, I, I, I always worry that we're on the cusp of a turn to collectivism and government overreach. And I, I don't know if I should be concerned. I guess Venezuela offers sort of a modern day example that you can have a functioning economy that ends up taking a really short term. But I think that there is this notion that, oh, we'd, we'd never do go into a Soviet Union style system. We would never have that happen. If we had anybody who was controlling, they'd be a benevolent dictator. Maybe it goes back <laughs> to that parental collectivism or parental socialism you were talking about. But one of the things that did strike me, and I think we have to, we do have to talk fairly candidly about this, is that communism is a bloody, bloody system. Totalitarianism is a bloody, bloody system. And I'm not sure if we can connect all the reasons why that is. I, I did make note of one of the lines that you had in one of the uh, papers that you wrote is that we talked about how the Soviet Union led to poverty, famine, tyranny, and murder. And I think people think that that couldn't ever happen again. But there, what are the forces that cause that to happen? Why is it that when we do end up with more collectivism, more, more centralized decision-making, whether they're te technocratic socialists or any other kind of socialists, why does it manifest in that kind of human misery? What is the dynamic that happens there? So, I mean, in many ways, as an economist, you know, we, we would talk to students and, and ask them to look at Hayek's Road to Serfdom. And I think that the book is extremely relevant to today. Um, the, the, uh, many of the same ideological forces that were at work in the early part of the 20th century are re rearing their ugly head again now. The sort of right-wing authoritarian nationalism, the left-wing collectivist, uh, you know, utopian communism. And as Hayek has a chapter in there, the end of truth which is an anti-enlightenment thrust of a lot of intellectual discourse, which takes the legs out from underneath your ability to actually argue here, because it's not about evidence and logic. It's about aesthetics. This is the picture I want to paint about the world and, and whatnot. But I think that one of the things that we should be asking young people to do is read Hannah Arendt again. And I think she's just very, very powerful and relevant on the origins of totalitarianism because it would raise a big doubt to the, the desire by a lot of young people 
to cancel people that they disagree with and see the parallels when you allow that to dominate your culture. Um, and what that does is, as Arendt says, when you eliminate the private by making everything the public, it forces the private even into a deeper re recesses, which means that the bulwark of civil society against the totalitarian state is muted, hmm. right? When we have strong communities that can actually are vibrant, they can be a bulwark. And so part of the reason why people believe that it can't happen to us is because they believe that we have a strong enough civil society, enough a strong enough civic moray that we won't allow the thugs to take over. But if the civic moray gets annihilated in the end of truth, right, then what's there to stop them from doing it? So I'm a little crazy like you because I spent my youth studying totalitarian systems, in particular the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. And so I, I probably over worry about that happening. But again, I, I see so many parallel trends mm. in, the in the beginning decades of the 20th, uh, 21st century. And I think, my God, didn't we learn the lessons of the 21st century, uh, the 20th century? You know, and, and, and uh, it, it just frustrates the heck out of me when I see these trends going. But I would encourage young people to not only read Hayek, but sit down and read Hannah Arendt and other intellectuals that lived through the collectivist nightmare of the 1930s and 40s. And, and that is collectivism on the right and collectivism on the left. And, and try to wrestle with that. So read everything they can about the Holocaust, but also read about the programs you know, that Stalin, uh, you know, perpetuated in Ukraine and, and what's called the Red Holocaust. Um, and, uh, and then read about Mao and, you know, what happened in, in Maoist China and then Cambodia and the killing fields. And, you know, it's like when we were kids, there were movies out like the killing fields, right? Yep. Um, they're not the movies being made right now. Why isn't there documentaries about, you know, what's going on in China right now, you know, with some of the groups in, 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 in China and the, and the extreme discrimination against them, the fight against democracy in Hong Kong, you know, that's going on in, in you know, by the Chinese regime. Um, you know, we don't, we don't see that enough. And maybe we're, it's too soon and, so, and the artistic culture needs time to catch up, but it needs to start paying attention because right now we're kind of in a state of denial with what's going on in very, very bad way in a lot of regions of the world and including in our own backyard, you know, where we're doing things that I don't think any of us would really, you know, approve of if it, if we were in a different time frame, you know, sort of, uh, I, look, I, 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 I want to get back to as much as normal as possible. Right. So when the government tells me I need to get a shot, I'm the first in line. If the government tells me I need a booster, I get online because I, I just want us to get back to normal. Right. I don't think twice about it. I don't you know, I, I don't I don't deny anyone's desire to have their own autonomy or whatever. I'm just like, look, I just want to get the hell back. Tell me what I need to do. Do I need to, like, you know, take a shot in the eye or whatever? I don't care. Right. Whatever you need me to do. And uh, and so I, I want to go back there. But I am shocked that we are in a situation where we are literally demonizing people for their medical choices. Mm -hmm.
I mean, can you believe that? I mean, we never would have argued that 10 years ago and said, oh, choice. you know, you yes. want to have autonomy in your choice of your medical care. And then people like say, you're a bad person. No, they would never say that. And now we're saying it, you know, and, and we're saying it from the from the pulpit of the White House, right? Which is that Christmas is going to be wonderful for the boosted and, you know, miserable for the for the unvaccinated kind of thing, rather than, and, and they're talking about rationing medical services and things like that in the United States. These are these are positions in which I would never believe we would have. But just to tie it back to communism stuff, when I was a kid and I was starting out my career, I used to travel a lot in Eastern Europe. And when you went from the United States and Eastern Europe, I had to fly a lot through Frankfurt or actually through Rome sometimes. And I was shocked in Frankfurt in the late 80s, early 90s, standing there and seeing people in line to go through security. Mm -hmm. Like I thought to myself, I, I, I can't tell you what it was in Canada at that time, but in the United States, if I wanted to take my mom to go see my aunt down in Florida, I could walk her all the way to the plane, give her a kiss, maybe even help her get on the plane, right? All these things like that. Um, you know, uh, now all of a sudden, you know, so the security was crazy in Germany. And I remember thinking that will never happen in America. Hmm. And now I haven't flown for the last two years, but, you know, we have the, the TSA and everything like that. And so I keep on wondering, you know, all right, so what theater is going to remain about COVID after it's all gone? Right? Certainly, like, you know, people taking off their shoes and their belts and everything else, that's more theater than it is protection. So what's going to be the theater that we're going to have to do now? And are we going to do it willingly? And this has a lot to do with social science because it's about expectations and the interaction that people have about their expectations and everything like that. And so I think as a scientist, I'm fascinated by trying to figure out what's going on with all of this down the pipe. But anyway, well, it's, a, it's a, it'll it's be a fascinating question. to see. And it goes to the whole issue of collectivism, that the collective is now more important than the, than the individual. So we got back full circle as to why some of you that might be. But you know, what's interesting is that it did take what, almost 75 years for the, communist, the Soviet Union experiment to collapse. I'll, I'll talk to you in 75 years and we'll see how this but, one turns out. Danielle, if you give me a rate, I mean, this is one of the reasons why we have to look at the militarization. Mm -hmm. The reason why the, the, the communist regimes were able to last was because they transformed an economic problem into a technological problem, which was the ultimate goal was the survival of the system. It didn't matter what the means were, just one goal rather than our normal free society is a multiplicity of goals. And so we can't treat freedom as a single end. Freedom has a multiplicity of ends, all right, and a scarcity of means to achieve it. So that requires all of this decentralization. Whereas when we decide that there's one end and then we can mobilize all of society's resources to get that one end, we end up by centralizing. And this is why I'm so scared at the way that we've tackled our health issues at the moment. It's like, think about before we went on air, you were talking about the hospitals deciding that you can't have elective surgery and everything like that because we had to shut down even when the cases weren't that large because, but why? Because COVID was the only thing that mattered. Mm -hmm. So then what's the opportunity cost that people are facing in terms of cancer that isn't detected, 
or surgeries that then they weren't able to get physical therapy for because that was shut down. And so now their surgeries are ineffective, right? You said you had a friend who got a hip replacement or whatever. Well, he or she had to go through a massive amount of physical therapy to be able to have that hip operation work. Well, if the hip, if the physical therapy shut down because elective sources are not available because the hospitals deem that COVID is the only thing, they're going to be in bad shape unless they're very, very individually disciplined, you know, um, like that. And so I think that we are going to be studying the consequences of this suppression of the multiplicity of ends to the service of one end for many, many decades to come. And I fear that the militarization of societies that come from when we suppress multiplicity to a single end is something that's going to leave scars on society for a long time. And so I worry about that as a citizen. I puzzle with that as a scholar. And I, I think that none of us have a red phone to God that will tell us, you know, what the right answer is. So all we can do is have conversation about it. So And, and check back in in a, a, a few more years once it becomes a little bit more clear. You have given us a very long reading list as homework, Professor. Thank you so much for the conversation today. I sure appreciate it. Well, thank you. That was uh, Peter Betke. He is a professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason University and senior fellow of the Fraser Institute. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org.